Amen. You may have a seat. And as you grab your seat, you want to also grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 1 as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. I mentioned at our prayer meeting this morning how thankful I am just for another day and how God's grace is new every morning. Sundays are by far my favorite days to come and gather with the saints, to sing, and now to sit under God's word. Would you please set your eyes there on Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. I'm going to take you back over the last couple of weeks, and we will read to verse 25 as we dive right back in. Here's God's word for us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, He was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. But the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands before God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the sanctuary, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it happened that, well, uh, that when the days of his priestly service were fulfilled, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Would you please join me as we pray? Oh, Father, there are lessons upon lessons to learn from this text. 
Would you please impress upon our hearts this morning your unwavering faithfulness despite our faithlessness? Remind us, God, that your word is true and powerful and reliable, and it has promised even this morning to do its work in our hearts to bring about greater appreciation, love, affection, and obedience to our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, upon hearing that news, Zechariah should have been ecstatic, full of joy. But when we read that text, maybe you're surprised that he's not. But maybe you're not surprised. Maybe this makes perfect sense to you. I mean, the Lord appears to him through an angel, says you're going to have a son. But for so long, this brother and his wife have been praying and praying and praying and nothing. And they're well past the years of having children. And so maybe Zechariah thinks to himself, well, this is not the Lord's will. God has chosen in his good sovereignty for whatever inscrutable reason to not give us children. And so an angel appears and our brother doubts. And that's going to be our focus this morning, thinking about Zachariah's doubt. If you are taking notes, here's our main idea from verses 18 through 25 in Luke chapter 1. It teaches us that God expects his people to take him at his word. It's as simple as that. God expects his people to take him at his word. And as we begin, I just want to remind you that Doubt is dangerous. Why? Well, because it dishonors God. And it invites God's discipline. But listen to this. Your doubt will never dislodge your position and standing before God as his beloved child. As we work through this narrative, what I want us to do is examine our own hearts as we think about Zechariah. Are you like Zechariah? You should be asking yourself that question as we move throughout the narrative here. Because Zechariah put a lot more stock in earthly realities than he did heavenly revelation. And God wants you to know this morning that his word can be trusted. His desire is that you would know his word, that you would trust his word, that you would proclaim his word despite all of the apparent impossibilities. And so the outline that will guide our time this morning, uh, I had Becky tell me that I always use P's, and so I changed it up uh, and made R's today. But here we go. Verse 18, the reason for doubt in 118. Then we have the response to doubt in 119. Then there's the rebuke for doubt in 120. Then the ripple effect of doubt in verses 21 through 25. And then we'll close our time just looking at some practical, just three practical implications. And I entitled that the remedy to overcome doubt. So the reason, the response, the rebuke, the ripple effect, and then we'll look at some remedies. But let's begin there in verse 18, the reason for doubt. It says, Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, at first glance, we see Zechariah's question, and it seems very reasonable. I mean, I, I think it is. How will I know this? 
Next week, we'll take a closer look at Gabriel's announcement to Mary just six months later. And she asks a very similar question, but totally different results. Now glance down there at verse 34 of chapter 1. Mary there says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So look at 118 and 134. Zechariah says, how will I know this? For I am an old man. Mary says, and how will this be since I am a virgin? And you say, well, that's close enough, isn't it? I mean, isn't that the same thing? And I would say, no, not at all, actually. You see, Mary's wording shows that she didn't doubt what Gabriel said. She knew it was so. Her question was how exactly God would accomplish this since she was a virgin. How will this be? I I believe you. I know what you say is going to come true, but I don't understand how it will come true. Zachariah's question is different. And the original Greek, it accentuates this. He says, according to what will I know this? This is what it says in the Greek. And then watch that next phrase there. Here's the purpose statement of the gar. For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the I there is fronted for emphasis, which means that his response is an immediate response of unbelief. I'm an old man. My wife's no spring chicken. You're telling me that I'm going to have a baby? What evidence can you provide for me to prove that what you're saying is true. Do you see, he's not asking how it's going to happen. He's not saying, I know it's going to happen. His response is, I will believe it once you show me some proof. And that there is the difference. He wanted a sign. He's basically telling Gabriel, put your money where your mouth is. Show me. You see, this brother would have got an A in biology. He understands that he is old, he shouldn't be having babies, but he actually got an F this time in theology. How many of us doubt like Zachariah? I think it's real easy to read the narrative and to give this guy all kinds of trouble because he should know better. He's a priest. I mean, he's over 80 years old. He's a godly guy. He's been walking with the Lord. You would think that he would not question And yet here he is questioning. But how many of us do that? We know God's word. We've memorized God's word. Mom and dad taught us God's word. We've been in the church for a long time. We can recite it. And yet, at times, we doubt it. We don't believe. We don't trust. Like Zechariah, we've devoted our lives to God. We know that he's powerful. We know that he's got unlimited resources. We can quote, he's got a cattle on a thousand hills. We know that he's proved himself time and time again. We know that everything he says is true and reliable. And yet sometimes, and here's the key word, sometimes we don't feel. We don't feel like it's true. You see, Zachariah, he's got no reason to doubt God. He had no reason to doubt Gabriel was sent by God, but his question is really equivalent to wanting God 
to show him the bank account to say, do you have enough money in there to grant me my promises? It's inappropriate. It's unnecessary. It's dishonoring to the God of the universe. So Gabriel just delivered the greatest news that Zachariah has ever heard. This announcement is beyond amazing. But I want you to notice verse 19 because Gabriel's response to Zachariah's doubt is also very amazing. Look there at the response to doubt in verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands before God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, now why is Gabriel's response here so significant? Well, first, it's the name drop. As soon as he says Gabriel, Zechariah would have just flipped out. He's never met Gabriel before, but he has grown up reading the scriptures. He knows the book of Daniel. He knows that there's a 70-week prophecy, and the one who delivered it to the prophet Daniel was Gabriel himself. So as soon as Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, he would have flipped his wig. Gabriel is not a VIP. He is a VIA, a very important angel. When we think about the, the angels that are named in Scripture, there's only two of them, Michael and Gabriel. And here he is, Gabriel right in front of Zechariah. Even though the last time we saw him was centuries before, here he is again, standing right in front of him. Now remember from our past expositions, Zechariah's name means God remembers or God has remembered. And so the, the sight of the angel should have been a signal for Zechariah that God is about to fulfill his promises once again, that he's doing something special here. The second significant statement that Gabriel makes is just as staggering as the name drop. He says, look there in the text, I stand in the presence of God. Look, Zechariah, you're standing near the Holy of Holies. You're standing next to the altar of incense but I actually stand right next to Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he's the one that has sent me to you to deliver this message. You see, every time that Gabriel is sent, he's not sent as like a little errand boy to help you find a parking space or to get fluffy out of the tree. He's sent to deliver the most earth-shattering news. And that's what he came to tell Zechariah. Your son is gonna be a forerunner to the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. He's on his way. And that's the message. He says, I was sent to speak to you and bring you, what does it say? This what? Good news. What he's saying here is, look, I didn't come on my own authority. I'm not making this stuff up. I have been sent for a specific purpose. This is actually called a divine passive, meaning God is the one who sent him to deliver a message with the highest authority conceivable. And I want you also to notice that he says, I was sent to you personally, individually. I've come to you, Zechariah, to bring this good news. And that phrase in the English 
bring good news or proclaim good news. It's just one word in the Greek. The verb is euangelizo, and in that you can hear euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel. Gabriel says, look, God has sent me to tell you, to give you the greatest news that God is fulfilling his promises. He's fulfilling his prophecies. He's about to bring about repentance and turn people back to God. This is the most significant moment in history to this point. He is about to reverse the curse. He is about to rescue sinners, to restore relationships, to renew affections. He's going to bring those four candles right there, hope and joy and love and peace to a world that so desperately needs it. And your son is going to be the starting point of all that. So don't sit there and tell me you're too old for all this to happen. Because God said it. I love this. I am Gabriel. He says, I'm an old man, Zachariah does. Gabriel, his name means, well, I'm a mighty man. A mighty man of God. I'm an old man. Well, I'm a mighty man of God. And what I said, because it comes with the authority of God, will most certainly come to pass. Now, this is amazing news. Let me ask you the question. What do you do when you receive good news? What do you do? You rejoice. There are lots of babies in the valleys sitting here this morning. That news that went to dad or that news that went to mom or that news that went to the kids, that news that went to the church, we're pregnant. Love hearing that news. We rejoice over that news because that's what you do with good news. You rejoice over it. You know what else you do with good news? You go and proclaim it. You get on the phone. You start telling people. You shout it out. You know what you don't do with good news? You don't doubt it. You don't doubt it. But that's exactly what we see here. I'm sure some of you have seen that popular Christianese bumper sticker. I remember seeing this all the time. And I'm not sure if we have it up there. But uh, you'll remember this when you hear it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I've heard that a lot when I first became a believer. And we've seen that on church signage outside of church buildings. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul say that every time he sees that bumper sticker, he just wants to pull out a marker, go up to the car, and scratch out the middle. Just put a line through, I believe it. You say, well, why would R.C. say that? Well, because your belief in what God says doesn't make it any less true or authoritative. You don't have to believe it in order for it to be true. Once God says it, it's true. And so more appropriately, more biblically, we would say, God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. You remember what God told Abraham, whose wife, by the way, was also old, too old to have a baby. Back in Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham was as good as what? Dead. Now, for those of you that are getting close to 100, uh, that's just what the text says. Sarah 
was also have said, uh, said that her womb was actually dead. So listen, if anyone shouldn't be having a baby, it's this couple here. But listen to the words of Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14. We read this. Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now, the Hebrew word here, and I love this, is pele. Most of the translations read difficult or or hard. But interestingly, Sam opened us up with Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, 6, and you'll be familiar with this passage, we see that same word, but there it's translated wonderful. So Isaiah 9, 6 says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Pele, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The idea here is, look, there is nothing, nothing that is too difficult for God. This is what God does. God does marvelous things. He does amazing things. He's got no problem executing what seems impossible. But Zechariah, he wanted proof. Show me. What he didn't realize is the proof was standing right in front of him. You see, discontentment, even with convincing evidence, It reminds me of that parable, not not a biblical parable, but maybe you've heard this one. The guy who gets stuck on a rooftop when the flood comes, and he's there on the rooftop, and, and the water's continuing to rise, and a guy comes in a rowboat and says, hey, jump in. I can save you. I've got room. And the guy says, no, 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 no. I'm praying to God, and God will save me. So the guy rows away, and then the motorboat comes afterwards. And he says, hey, I've got plenty of room. Jump in. I'll save you. The guy says, no, no, no. I've been praying to the Lord. The Lord will indeed save me. I trust him. I believe him. Well, the water keeps rising and rising and rising. Finally, a helicopter comes, drops the ladder and says, you got to come up. There's not much time. The guy says, oh, no, I've been praying. And the Lord has guaranteed that he is going to save me. And then he dies. And he gets before the Lord and he gets mad and he starts to scold the Lord and said, I was praying. And if you've seen The Pursuit of Happiness, I love the way he tells the story. He says, well, dummy, I sent you three different opportunities to be rescued and you ignored them all. Zechariah finds himself in a similar situation. Again, it's so easy to give him a hard time. But how often has God answered prayer? How often has God come through for you? And we still sit back and say, oh, no, no, no. I'm praying. I'm going to keep waiting when the answer is right in front of your face. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, look, it wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. The reason for Zachariah's doubt was Zachariah's abiding sin. The reason why we doubt the word of God is not because his word is unbelievable or incredible, but listen to this, 
It is because we project upon God the untrustworthiness that describes our own condition. Martin Luther gives an even stronger word when he says this, what greater rebellion against God, what greater wickedness, what greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? For what is this but to make God a liar or to doubt that he is truthful? And that has to sting because both you and I historically have struggled with doubts. God says, there is now therefore no condemnation for Christ Jesus, but sometimes we walk around like we're just condemned people. Romans 3, 3 and 4 says this, what then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? May genetai, may it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. Listen, when God speaks, he speaks what is absolutely true, and we would do well to believe every single word. So Zechariah responds with doubt. Well, how does Gabriel respond to Zechariah's doubt? Look there at verse 20. Here's the rebuke. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You see, the consequence of his doubt was no more speaking. He lost that privilege until John was going to be born. Essentially, he says, look, if you're going to speak nonsense, you're not going to be able to speak at all. You're going to be silent. But notice, this isn't just a bad case of laryngitis. The text says that he was actually unable to speak, and, and there is a difference. When, when you lose your voice, you can still kind of mouth things. But here, he can't even put words together. It is kind of ironic because, Zechariah, you're going to have a baby, but because you don't believe, you're going to go back to being a baby, and you're not going to make any sense. Now, I imagine that losing... Our ability to speak would be very, very difficult. But how much more for a priest? How much more embarrassing for a priest or a pastor? I mean, this is kind of our job. We have to get up and we have to speak and we have to preach and we have to pray. We pronounce blessings. Well, that's really hard to do if you can't speak. You say, well, why, why did God make him mute? Listen to one commentator, David Gooding. He said this, a priest who cannot believe the authoritative word of an angel because he cannot accept the possibility of divine intervention to reverse the decay of nature has lost faith in the basic principle of redemption. Without redemption, he has no gospel. Without a gospel, any blessing he pronounced upon the people would be the emptiest of professional formalities. If Zechariah could not believe the angel's gospel, it were better that he did not pretend to bless the people. Fittingly, the angel struck him dumb. Listen, God's word transforms lives. If someone doesn't believe that, they have no business preaching that. So he's not going to be able to say anything. You say, for how long? Well, look again there in the text. 
until the day when these things take place because you do not believe my words. This whole season, nine months, 10 months, what was that like for Zechariah? Waking up every morning, forgetting, oh, I can't speak. No one understands anything I'm saying. Some people think that he couldn't hear either because later on he's, they're making signs to him. But he woke up every day. Not one single day went by that he wasn't reminded why he wasn't able to speak. I can't say what I want to say because of my unbelief. I can't speak. I can't talk to my wife because of unbelief. You see, he wanted a sign, but this actually was the sign. Silence. It reinforced in his own mind the veracity of God's word. But his silence was also, listen to this, a sign of hope. And you say, well, how so? There's another promise that's made here. Not only will Zechariah and Elizabeth have a son in their old age, but the text says that he's going to regain his speech when his son is born. So every day he was reminded of the consequences of his doubt, but he was also reminded of the promise of one day being able to speak again. Now what amazing grace that is. It was all of grace that Gabriel didn't just zap him dead for his unbelief. Even more grace that he wasn't silent for the rest of his life. I mean, he could have easily remained mute but even the rebuke to Zechariah's faithlessness was a demonstration, listen to this, of God's grace. So we've looked here at the reason for Zechariah's doubts, Gabriel's response to his doubts, the rebuke for his doubt. Now let's turn our attention to verses 21 through 25, the ripple effect of doubt. Verse 22 says, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. The people in the courtyard are just getting worried. There in verse 21, it says they were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering what, what the delay was. See, usually the priests didn't stay in the holy place for very long. I mean, they burned some incense, they made some prayers, and then they came back out. But as time goes on, they're wondering as they're waiting outside, what's up with Brother Zechariah? I mean, I know he's old. Did he fall in there? Or did, he, did he die? Did he do something he shouldn't have done? Did he dishonor the Lord? Did he profane the holy place? Should we go in? Do we go? I don't know. Do we go in? I don't know. What do we do? And they're looking at one another and they say, well, we kind of could get the show on the road. Should I just stand up and, and do the blessing myself? So they're all sitting there. They're waiting for him to come out. And then all of a sudden, he does. He walks out. But he's speechless. He, he can't say anything. He's just heard the most significant news in hundreds and hundreds of years. But he can't say anything. All he could do was make signs. I'll try just imagining, how do you explain that with signs? How do you describe an angel? <laughs> you can tell I'm really bad at charades. <laughs> but interestingly, look at the text. It says they immediately 
understood that he saw a vision. You remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and his face was glowing? They knew that he was in the presence of God. There might be something similar here. But a question is, why all this drama? Why, why did God choose to send Gabriel during the most significant time of this man's life, the only time that he would be able to go in the holy place and offer up the incense? Why create all of this commotion with all of these people present? And you have to remember, why did Luke write his gospel specifically? It was to Theophilus, but it's a message to all of us so that we would know with certainty the reason why there's all these witnesses, you want to question it, go ask them. It's verifiable. They were all there. They all saw what was going on. But listen, this wasn't just for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It wasn't just for the people around the temple. It wasn't just for all the Jews. It wasn't just for all the future Gentiles. This is here for us. The silencing of Zechariah was an indication, listen to this, that God is faithful. He has stepped on the scene again and he has spoken again and he is on the move in a way like he has not been before. So something great, something significant is about to happen. The scriptures that these folks read and the stories that were passed down from generation to generation about God's great and marvelous works is beginning to unfold right before their very eyes. Now, as we close our exposition of this passage, I just want to point something out by way of encouragement. Notice that Zachariah's doubts, it didn't actually disqualify him from the reward. You notice that? Zachariah's doubt didn't disqualify him. He's rewarded despite his doubt. Look there at verse 23. And it happened that when the days of his priestly service were fulfilled, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth's wife conceived. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my disgrace among men. I just love that. How sweet and precious of the Lord. He didn't dismiss this brother for his temporary lapse of faith. Listen, our doubts, they never nullify the faithfulness of God. His promises are greater than your doubts. His promises are greater than your problems. His promises are greater than your perceived reality. And even greater, listen to this, than our poor attempts at being faithful. We've looked at the reason, the response, the rebuke, the ripple effect. Now I want to focus our attention just on some practical implications from this text. I'm calling this last point the remedy for doubt. And I just want to give you three, three I think, helpful things to help us think and process through our own doubts. Number one, don't demand too much evidence from God. You hear that? Don't demand too much evidence from God before you believe his promises. Number two, don't delude yourself into thinking that the righteous don't doubt. And number three, don't despise the Lord's discipline when you're disciplined because of your doubt. Okay, so those three things, don't demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. 
We said this already. It's not wrong to desire evidence. That, that, that's a good thing. Jesus himself affirms evidence is a good thing. Remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus presents himself alive after suffering. And it says there, he showed them with many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so you need to know this, especially you young Christians, that belief is not baseless. We do not have a blind faith. We have more than enough evidence, and that evidence demands a verdict. And the verdict is this. It's just real simple. God is true. He's authoritative. Everything that he says comes to pass. But when we begin to demand signs that go beyond what a humble and teachable heart would require, then that is evil. It doesn't trust God. It doesn't believe God. Jesus rebuked the crowds for insisting more and more proof. Luke eleven twenty nine says, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this is a wicked and perverse generation because all you're doing is seeking for the signs. And he says, no sign will be given, but the sign of what? Of Jonah. And that was speaking about the resurrection. But the people during Jesus' day, they had more than enough evidence. They heard his teachings. They knew that his teaching didn't come from men. They saw his miracles. They checked off all the prophecies that he was fulfilling, but still they wanted more. Give me more. Give me more. Have you ever been in a conversation with a non-believer? And they just say, yeah, I'll, I'll believe you're Jesus. I'll believe you're God once he shows up right now, right here, and proves to me that he exists. Well, he has. He died on a cross, and he gave us his word. And these words are powerful. What I love about Jesus is he never belittles honest inquiries. But he does expose hard hearts. And he does expose those who are slow to believe. If we start saying, well, what else are you going to do for me? What else are you going to show me? How else are you going to prove this? What we're saying is your character is not sufficient. We need to be careful that we don't follow in Zachariah's footsteps by demanding too much evidence before we actually trust and obey. You say, well, Pastor Dom, I mean, maybe Zachariah and Elizabeth they didn't believe because of all the heartache they've been through. Maybe you just don't understand their situation. I get it. Probably had many sleepless nights. Probably wet their bed with tears because they wanted to have a baby. We've experienced miscarriages. Many of you have experienced miscarriages. It's a difficult thing. But we can't expect God to operate on our timing, we can't allow our confusion over what God is doing with his capability. We can't allow our perplexities to diminish God's power. And we certainly can't buy into the lie that God is not in control and that he's not good. Because listen, if you are in Christ, everything that God does is for his glory and for your good. Whether you think so or not, so listen, don't demand too much evidence, but secondly, don't delude yourself into thinking that righteous people don't doubt. 
As believers, you and I, we will have lapses of faith. There's a big difference, though, between a lapse of faith and a permanent way of life. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have struggles believing God. You're going to struggle with assurance. You're going to struggle with believing God's promises. That's because doubt is a universal problem. Non-believers and believers. Christians are not immune. And the interesting thing is that it's just told us that Zechariah was a righteous man in the sight of God, that he was walking blamelessly in the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. And here he is, thankfully, for us, for our sake, he has doubts. Hopefully that's reassuring to you. Not to wallow in your doubts, not to multiply your doubts, but to understand this happens for believers. The fact that a godly man like that wavered in unbelief shows us that we're not exempt. But let's be clear, it still is sin. And we need to repent of it. You think of Adam and Eve with their doubts, Abraham and Sarah, all the patriarchs, David and the psalmist, as you read through the Psalms, Elijah and the prophets, Jesus' disciples, Peter. I mean, he even had a disciple, Thomas, who's known as Thomas the what? The doubter. But listen to this. Even Zachariah's son, John the Baptist, the one that Jesus said is the greatest man born of a woman, even he has his doubts. He's the one that said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And think of his track record all the way to the valley, rejoicing that the Savior was born. And he hears the voice come from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's got all of that evidence, and yet he finds himself in prison, things not going the way that he thinks they should be going. And he sends his disciples, Are you the one that we should be waiting for? Or should we wait for someone else? And don't you love the way Jesus responds Go and tell that idiot to stop doubting. He doesn't say that. He says, you go back and tell John all the things that you've seen, that the blind receive their sight, that the lame can walk. And he says this, maybe with a slight rebuke, blessed are those who believe in me, who trust me. That's all John needed to hear. He's fulfilling Scripture. His character, his miracles, his word, his works, all of them are in line with what God said about the Messiah. And I love that. Look, God will meet you in your doubts. He'll remind you of his faithfulness. You say, well, what do I do with these doubts? Just real simple. You voice them. You express them in honesty to God. You don't keep them a secret. You don't sweep them under the rug and think that they're somehow going to go away. Now, all throughout redemptive history, both men and women have voiced their doubts and questions to God. And the beautiful thing about God is like a father, he welcomes them. He's not annoyed by you when you have questions. He's not frustrated with you when you have genuine questions. He wants to meet you in your time of need. And if you're asking with humility and seeking wisdom, he'll grant that. Look, Christians, please, please remember who your Father in heaven is. He's all-wise, which means he knows all. He's loving, which means he does what is best. He's gracious, which means he gives what is best. And the Bible is very clear he is good, which means that 
He himself is what is best. You may not feel like God is for you, but you need to memorize and muse passages like Romans 8.32. He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I love what Jerry Bridges says in his book. It's a great one. You need to pick it up called Trusting God. This is what Jerry Bridges says. God's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed over and over in Scripture. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith create it. It originates in the very nature of God, who is love, and it flows to us through our union with his beloved Son. This is exactly why Jonathan Edwards came up with resolution number 25. Just listen to what Jonathan Edwards jotted down at 19 years old. He said this, resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing is in me which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. He wanted to do everything humanly, supernaturally possible to fight against doubt. So listen, don't demand too much evidence. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you won't doubt. And finally, don't despise the discipline of the Lord when you do doubt. There are consequences to doubting. Christian, but aren't you thankful that even though you might have to endure chastisement for a time, that the Lord will never cast you away. He'll never unadopt you because you're doubting. He's not going to kick you out of his family. Zechariah followed through later on, and in obedience, he named his son John, and he got his voice back. If you look down to verse 67, the last recorded words of brother Zechariah are these, and his father... Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people. And that's it. See, he went from being faithful to faithless to speechless to faithful again. And this is how the Christian life works. It is a roller coaster. It is. Sometimes we're strong in the faith. Sometimes we're not. But regardless, if you are truly in Christ at the end of the day, you will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So listen, don't despair when you fail, because you will, but God is gracious. And his promises, there's no temptation that is going to overcome you. All this is common to man, and God is faithful to provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure. Let's close with one last passage. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. You just need to be reminded because I know that there are some of you in particular, even today, who are going through a season of discipline and you need to hear God's word. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse seven. This is what we read. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our what? Benefit, so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is a gigantic difference between God's discipline and God's punishment. And as believers, you and I need to be very clear on the difference. You say, Dom, well, what's the difference? Well, it's the difference between a very sharp blade. You say, what do you mean? Well, it all depends on who's using it and how they're using it. You can really hurt someone with a sharp blade. But if you're a doctor and you're trying to remove cancer, then you're going to be very precise, very exacting, very gentle. And that is how God's discipline works in our lives. He knows exactly what he's doing. So yes, it might hurt. It might be difficult. It might cause pain. But it's to extract the cancer of doubt and sin to help us trust and rely on him. And remember, even though it might hurt, everything God does is for our holiness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for times like these in your word where we are corrected. When you help us to have the proper perspective Father, we confess that we um, are doubting people. Uh, I think it's easy for us to look at the children of Israel and to poke fun at them because they witness things like the Exodus. And then immediately after crossing the Red Sea, they began to murmur and complain. And Lord, you have provided for us even a greater Exodus, a greater redemption, a greater rescue by saving our souls from hell. And yet, Father, we find ourselves all too often murmuring, complaining, and doubting your goodness. Oh, Father, would you please forgive us? Would you please remind us that though we might be faithless, you are always faithful? Would you please shore up our confidence in who you are, what you've done, and help us to understand that for the true believer, there is no condemnation, that Jesus Christ has taken it all upon himself, that you are not vindictive, that you do not punish us according to our sins and what they deserve, but all of our punishment was placed upon Christ on that cross. He has bore the wrath, and it's because of him it's because of his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his mercy, his grace, that we can be fully forgiven. And so we thank you for that special, significant, and unchanging truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.